WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans. This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. It's the holiday season, and with the new year coming, we're all reflecting on the highlights from our past year. And here at WRKF and WWNO, we're doing the same thing. We wanted to revisit some of our favorite conversations and give you a behind-the-scenes look at how they came together. For more, we're joined by Louisiana Considered producer Alana Schreiber. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Adam. So, Alana, looking back at 2022, what stories from this past year, what conversations are you thinking about? What's really stuck out to you this year? Well, a big one definitely has to be the interview that you did with former New York Times executive editor Dean Bacay. I remember when I first announced that he agreed to talk to us, you, for the first and only time, I might add, reached out to me and said, hey, I'd really like to do that interview. And why was that? Yeah, you're right about that. Well, first of all, I'm a journalism geek. You know, I'm really interested in how the news is done and why journalism organizations make the decisions that they do and how they hold themselves accountable to their audience and what it takes to gain access to the truth. Um, You know, one ethos I've clung to is that the truth is always out there. It exists. There's evidence of it. Somebody knows it. And it'll always come to the surface or be found out sooner or later. It just takes some work. Also, ever since childhood, the job of newspaper editor was one of my many dream jobs. And, of course, I would jump at the opportunity to learn everything I can from somebody who who held that job. And since Dean Baquet is from New Orleans, I wanted to know what it was about his background here in Louisiana that made him want to be a journalist. Wow. Well, as a child, my first dream job was to be a shortstop on the New York Mets. So yours sounds a little bit more realistic. What were some of the main things that you took away from that conversation with Dean? One thing about New Orleans culturally told me that I've since heard from other people. Uh, For some people, it's like the other side of town could just as well be the other side of the world is kind of what he said. He grew up in one neighborhood and he mentioned how he hadn't even seen this different neighborhood until he became a newspaper reporter and he had to go there. Um, But more seriously, I wanted to know what his perspective was on what the business model of journalism will be in the future. Um, He spoke particularly about local journalism, and the reality is that there are fewer newspapers than there used to be. You know, less competition, fewer journalists. Cities that used to have multiple newspapers have just one, if that. And of course, New Orleans is a big example, of course, where, you know, we used to have the Times-Picayune, the state's item, where Baquet used to work, and the New Orleans Advocate. And, you know, this wasn't just a selfish question for me. I wasn't asking just because I wanted to know if I'd have a job as a journalist for the next 30 years until I retire. I'm genuinely curious and and, and concerned about how local journalism will survive in a digital age where people are less inclined to pay for something that they can get for free. Yeah, I remember that. And and I remember Dean talking as well about, you know, growing up in Treme and Years later, he had to cover a fire in a different neighborhood of New Orleans, and he couldn't find it. He got lost. Exactly. Well, Dean is a longtime journalist who's worked in New Orleans, Chicago, L.A., and New York. Did he offer any words of wisdom for reporters like yourself? Did he have any inspiring advice? Yeah. Honestly, the biggest thing I got out of listening to him was that he told us about what it'll take to preserve journalism as an institution It'll be communicating to audiences why it's important to support that journalism and invest in it. 
you know, journalists have to be their own advocates, which isn't entirely natural for them. We're not especially used to talking meta, you know, talking about ourselves and what we do and promoting ourselves and doing something that feels like boasting and establishing to readers, listeners, what the value is of what journalists do. Sounds like Dean was full of wisdom. That's for sure. And with that, I think it might be time we give this conversation a second listen. I'd like to start at the very beginning with your growing up in New Orleans. What was your first exposure to journalism there? When did you know that this was the field that you wanted to pursue? You know, I did not think of journalism as a field I'd pursue when I was growing up. I mean, I read the paper. Um, I read the State's Item and the Times-Picayune um, every day, particularly sports. Um, but I, I didn't I didn't realize that I wanted, I didn't think I wanted to be a journalist, frankly, until I got my first job at the state's item when I was like 19 or so. I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I never thought of, I mean, I was the editor of my high school paper, but that was more, frankly, just something to do. And I, I never, I didn't think of journalism as a career actually until much later in life. That's interesting. What was it about the state's item that made you think about journalism other than the fact it was a newspaper? So I, um, I was homesick. I went to Columbia University in New York. Um, I missed New Orleans. I missed my friends. And the state's item had a fellowship program. And I got a fellowship, um, and a summer internship. And I got it, and I just sort of fell in love with it. I fell in love with the characters. Um, the people in the state's item newsroom were just interesting glimpses of different um, different parts of New Orleans. And I fell in love with the urgency of news. I think within a couple of days, I figured I'd finally found something that I wanted to do for a living. In New Orleans at the State's Item and the Times-Picayune, what did you learn about the importance and the, the nuances of local journalism and investigative reporting? First off, I learned that there were huge parts of the city I didn't know at all. Uh, I'd grown up in Treme and the Seventh Ward, and I really didn't know Uptown. Um, I didn't know Algiers. I'm not even sure I'd been to Algiers. It was just, I remember the first time I, I covered a fire, I couldn't find it. It's a city I'd spent my whole life in. I can't remember where it was, but it, was, it wasn't in the neighborhoods I grew up in. So part of it was this, it opened up this whole new world in the city I grew up in. But, it, but I also think that one reason I, I got so interested in investigative reporting is I, I do think that I've always been interested. I've always thought that power imbalances are unhealthy for communities. And, you know, cities have power imbalances, whether it's um, the relationship sometimes between police and their communities, whether it's politicians who care more about getting reelected, big businesses, they care more about their bottom lines. I think those are always things, th those came to be things that I care, cared about and wanted to understand and investigate. After New Orleans, you spent some years in Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, among other places. What were some of the changes in the field of journalism that you saw during that time? The field has just changed. I mean, the newsroom of the New York Times, where I am sitting right now, does not look like any newsroom I started in. I mean, of course, I do not see a typewriter, right? <laughs> um, the biggest change, of course, is the arrival of, um, of the internet, obviously. And it's been, that's been pretty um, transformational for newsrooms. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's not the only reason, but it's one of the things that's contributed to the decline of local journalism. Frankly, I think that, I think there's one very powerful positive and then one very powerful negative, if I can oversimplify the changes. The very powerful positive is the best news organizations are better 
than they were before because they're they're just different disciplines. All we could do was write stories and take photographs when I started. We have video, we have video investigations, we have a giant audio operation. You know, we write better because computers allow you to write better and clearer and go back and make changes without like having to take it out of a typewriter. All that's better. But I think that the business model for local news has been blown up. Hmm. And I think local news is in big trouble. So that to me is the biggest downside, even though I think journalism overall is significantly better. What's the solution to the local journalism business model now that the internet blew up that model? How do you pay for journalism in local communities? What are the solutions? One solution I think is going to be for journalists to talk more about um, how we do business, to have people understand how hard it is, to have people understand how hard we try to get it right, even if even though we get it wrong sometimes, to make people understand why it's worth paying for. 30, 40 years ago, when I started in the business, it was so clear that newspapers were necessary, right? You didn't know whether it was going to rain until you picked up your local newspaper, right? You didn't, <clears throat> you didn't know if your team won. You didn't know, you know, if the taxes were passed in your community. There's a whole list of things. Everything I just described is being done by somebody else now. And I think we got to fight hard to answer the question, what do we do that's necessary? What do we do that people should be willing to pay for and can't do without? Which means you have to come up with stuff, stories, coverage that is different from what everybody else does. That's special. When you became the New York Times Washington Bureau Chief, you made it a top priority to hire more reporters and editors of color. Of course, mm -hmm. when you became executive editor, you were the first African-American to hold that position. Why do you think it is that people of color have been historically underrepresented in newsrooms? And what can we do to diversify, not only to diversify the staff, but also the kinds of stories and communities that are reported on? I don't think you can accurately cover a community if you don't look like the community. And that's not only race and ethnicity, it's, you know, politics, political background, the part of town you're from. You have to be in touch with the community. You have to understand what's going on in the community. You have to understand what are the most important dynamics. And I think the only way to do that is to sort of have a, a staff that looks like the community you cover. In the ideal world, in a local newsroom, your kids go to the same school as the kids of your readers. You know if your school system is in a crisis because your kids go to those schools. You are represented by the same politicians as everybody else. You understand and appreciate economic uncertainty. You eat at some of the same restaurants that the people you cover eat at. And, and if you do all those, if you have a staff that broadly does those things that lives that way, you're going to understand more about your community. This is Louisiana Considered. We're speaking with renowned journalist and former New York Times executive editor and New Orleans native Dean Baquet. I want to pivot to the 2016 election under mm -hmm. Trump, the relationship that readers had with news outlets uh, sort of changed. Mm -hmm. We saw an era of fake news and Trump mm -hmm. attacking reporters, including yourself by name, what were the big changes you saw in journalism during the onset of the Trump years? You know, Trump threw us for a loop. Um, and I think he showed a weakness in journalism. We were not, frankly, close enough to the community to realize that he was going to win. I don't think anybody, frankly, including Trump and the Republican Party, thought he was going to win. 
and I don't I just don't think we had it. We were we understood the country quite well enough to know he was going to win. But we'd never had, you know, we've had pre presidents and members of Congress who attack us. But Trump set out to undermine independent institutions consciously. He, he literally set out to undermine journalists and journalism. He set out to undermine, you know, the federal government. He set out to undermine, you know, the Supreme Court till he changed the Supreme Court. Um, I mean, I think that, that we've never had a leader who officially set out to undermine the institutions whose job it was to scrutinize him and ask hard questions about him. And that included the press. I think it was an appalling abuse of power, and it is. And how did that ultimately impact readership at the times? I thought, you know, our, our readership kept growing. In fact, in the beginning of Trump, we, we gained readers who, who suddenly wanted to know more about the news, and we've continued to gain readers. I don't think that's because of Trump. I think that's partly because the world has become more connected. But I don't think that you could have a president who routinely attacks with falsehoods the press and not have that contribute to people's distrust of the press. I mean, if the if a guy who was elected president accuses the press of fake news without any evidence, attacks the press, attacks news organizations, I, I of course that's going to have an impact on how we're regarded in the in the, among readers. Um, you know, it has not hurt the economics of the New York Times, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's, if it's hurt the economics of other news organizations. Yeah, it's not just the economics that are important as far as getting news out there. What do you think the effect was of the public's trust of the press, of independent institutions in general? Do you think it made the press's position seem a little more tenuous, a little more perilous? Yeah, yeah. I think that it first off started to lose some trust before. My own theory, pet theory, is partly because, again, we did 20 things. The typical news organization did 20 things. Of the 20, 18 weren't controversial. If your team won, if it's going to rain, if there was a millage increase, none of that was controversial. All that got taken away, we were sort of taken away. All that got is done by other people now. So we're left with the most controversial things. And then in comes a president who seeks actively to undermine institutions that question him, any institution that questions him. And yes, I do think that that has made people, that has helped to divide the country and has made people who are you know, who support Donald Trump less trusting of news organizations. Sure. I'd like to dig into your next venture, a local investigative fellowship program for young journalists. Can you tell us more about what that is? Yeah. So I, I mean, I've spent a big chunk of my career thinking about investigative reporting. It's the kind of reporting I did. It's the kind of reporting I've tried to lead at the New York Times, whether it's Harvey Weinstein or other stories like that. And I think that Many, many news organizations have gotten too small to do it themselves. I mean, I'm sure the Picayune is a quarter of the size it was at its peak. And I know, and I know other papers are um, even smaller, which means they don't have the ability to do investigative reporting, which is expensive and takes a long time. So my goal is to put together a group of editors at the New York Times and seek out reporters across the country who have real investigative ideas, put them on salary, the Times will pay for them, edit them with a team of editors who work for me, 
and publish it on the New York Times site and whatever local site. I'll be looking for freelancers, you know, people just out of college, as well as people who work in newsrooms. And, the, and there are two goals. One goal is to do the work. That's the first goal, to do the, to, to do the exposing that news organizations don't have the, the wherewithal to do as much as they used to. And the second one is to teach people how to do the work and hopefully have them stay in their communities and do it afterward. And the third one, frankly, is personal, which is this profession has given me a life that would have been unimaginable um, for me. And I feel like I owe it something. Earlier, you mentioned how local journalism, the business model, is kind of in a state of not knowing how to pay for it. It sounds like this is sort of a response to a lack of resources at the local level, at local publications, to do their own intensive yeah. investigative journalism. Yeah. I think if, you know, look, in the days when newspapers had staffs of 300, they could afford to have 10 people spend months on a story that may or may not pan out. The New York Times right now can't afford to do that. We've turned the corner. We have a giant staff. We have people who work on stories for very long periods of time. Smaller newsrooms can't do that. And, and some of the new websites and independent organizations that have started don't have the wherewithal to do that. So one of my goals is to help them do that and to provide re-editing resources and money to help them do it. Mm -hmm. What do you hope the fellows will gain from this experience? Well, first of all, I hope we, we do some big important journalism that changes the world. That's my first goal. My second goal is that they'll learn how to do it. They'll learn, you know, investigative reporting is not easy. You have to be, you know, you have to be a sort of a, a rigorous, sophisticated thinker. You have to, you know, be highly accurate. You have to have good ideas. You have to be really fair. You have to not jump to conclusions. You have to have some balance and understanding. And that's like tricky stuff. So I'm hoping they learn and, and continue to do the work. There are a variety of business models for making local reporting a reality now. Yeah, some which I think is good. I think, I think there are going to be a lot of different models. I think that it's going to be, you know, my, my prayer is that what emerges from this is from not just from my program, but from the whole, all the changes in journalism. My prayer is that profit models, nonprofit models, that there, there are new organizations that start and do different kinds of journalism. You know, historically, America had lots of news organizations. By the way, I'm not just talking about newspapers. I'm talking about the whole run of news organizations, websites, radio, television. You know, it used to be Cities like New Orleans and New York had a dozen news organizations. Um, and I don't know, with, with, maybe we're going to go back to some version of that. That seems counterintuitive to what we've been witnessing in the media ecosystem with corporations and news outlets merging, fewer left standing, fewer local newspapers, less competition. With that context, it sort of doesn't seem like there's a greater level of diversity popping up in, in journalism. I went to a journalism conference this past weekend, you know, and I met with an editor who has a website in Arizona that has one and a half reporters. Um, you know, my younger brother is involved in a new um, site in New Orleans called Verite that's just starting out. There's, I mean, maybe... Maybe there will be tons of smaller news operations that cover different parts of their communities. 
I mean, that's the history of American journalism. American journalism didn't start consolidating until, you know, until like two newspapers or one newspaper and a couple of television stations until a couple hundred years ago. But if you look at the history of it, there were tons of, of you know, there would be news organizations that would just cover, you know, the, the waterfront, just cover the Irish community, just cover the Italian community, just cover the black community. Well, my hope, by the way, when I said that I think there could be more diversification, more small news organizations, my hope is that the, the big ones also survive. I mean, I'm, <clears throat> my hope is that the Times Picayune is around for you know another 200 years or whatever, because I think you're going to need all of that. I think you're going to need both. So I do think that they and the smaller news operations are going to have to work harder to decide what's important to them, what's, what's, what's our, like, What's our core? I mean, the Times, when the Times began in the States, I'd emerged, they were giant. They covered everything. They can't do that anymore. So everybody's going to have to say, what's, what's, what is my core? What am I going to cover? And what's going to distinguish me from everybody else? It sounds like not just editors, but the people leading news organizations will have to figure out what their beat is going to be, what they're known for. That's right. And re- look, readers may have to do, I mean, we, we should not exclude readers who have their own responsibilities, right? I mean, when we talked earlier about truth and fact versus fiction, you know, like readers have to do a little bit of work here too. Um, and, and maybe not be so quick to believe conspiracy theories and, and, and also understand that, you know, the Times-Picayune, if you really want a good local newspaper, you're going to have to pay for it. You're going to have to pay for the Times-Picayune and you should pay for the Times-Picayune because they have people who live in the community who have you know, families in school and, and need to be paid. Before we go, I'd like to talk a little bit about the future of journalism. What do you think are some of the leading issues affecting journalism today? We touched on a little bit of the challenges in the recent past already. What do you think the biggest challenges will be that the industry faces? Well, I think the biggest one is going to be, frankly, local news. One of the biggest questions is going to be, how do we recreate the good things about the gigantic newspapers? How do we make sure that places that are not covered get some kind of scrutiny? How do we do that? How do we make sure that we are covering the the things that government does? And then frankly, how do we make sure we're covering the things big companies do? Nobody's got the wherewithal to cover the oil industry, which is so vital to you know, the future of climate, the future of, you know, the economics of places like Louisiana. So how do we do that? I don't have the answer to that, but I think those are like the biggest questions. It sounds like your next enterprise is a potential answer to that question. I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. Ultimately, what do you think it'll take for journalism to persevere as an institution? Um, my, My philosophy has always been good journalism always wins, whether that's in covering politicians, businesses, or just covering the world. So, you know, just good, honest, aggressive, thoughtful journalism that people have to have, that people have to read. I think that's what it's going to take. We've been speaking with Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and former executive editor of the New York Times, Dean Baquet. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. appreciate it. Say hi to everybody in New Orleans for me.
Dunn from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans. This has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks again to our guest, retired New York Times executive editor, Dean Baquet. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Purcell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered every weekday at noon and again at 7.30 in the evening. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.